2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 10. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, we're in the middle of a series on the entire New Testament, and today we will focus on the second epistle to the Corinthians. However, I must say this, when you think about Corinthians, it's likely that your mind gravitates towards 1 Corinthians. That's the one that's got the famous chapter 13 on love. It's got a famous chapter on the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians is better known than 2 Corinthians. It wins the popularity contest. So I'll probably reinforce the popularity contest by only focusing on 2 Corinthians just one week, which is what I'm about to do today. And the way to do that, at least for me, is to focus on a famous section that is kind of the window into the book. At the very beginning of the book, we see it revealed. Paul begins to speak about sufferings and hardship. And the reason he's doing this is because other people who, let's call them gospel charlatans, have done some subversive work in Corinth. And as a matter of fact, they've accused him of not being a real apostle worthy apostle. So Paul, speaking about himself, focuses not on what he's done, but upon his weaknesses. And that's what we see in this passage this morning. Apparently, the other folks who were teaching the gospel were enamored by signs and wonders and talked about all the visions they had. Apparently, they were enamored by big things and talked about the bigness. When I think about these self-promoting teachers in 2 Corinthians, allow me a little sidebar comment from a pastor. When I think about these people, I think about many ministerial conferences I've been to If you go to a ministerial conference, you will never find a keynote speaker coming from a pastor 
of a church of about 100. As a matter of fact, it's unlikely you'll even hear him or her in the workshop. What you're going to hear is the big guys, the grand churches, the success stories, and everybody is listening for a a nugget of truth that will help them get to the next level. Okay, that's my cynical side, but that's what I've experienced. And it reminds me of 2 Corinthians. Paul is a studied contrast to all of that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to break up his contrast to those teachers with three comments. First contrast. He boasts in his sufferings. He boasts in his sufferings. He gives you a litany of things that have happened to him that you might call suffering. He says, I've been flogged countless times. Obviously, that's a hyperbole. He probably actually knew how many times it was. He just said, it seems innumerable. I've been flogged. He says, I was once beaten with a whip 40 times, save one. In other words, 39 stripes. That probably came from the Sanhedrin or religious authorities because they were so careful about not going above the law, which would have been 40 lashes, that just in case they miscounted, they would hit only 39 times. He also says, I've been beaten with rods. That's probably a reference to a Roman magistrate beating him because we know of our history in Rome that that was a typical form of punishment. He says, also, look, I've been stoned. I've been adrift at sea. I've been shipwrecked. I've had dangers in all my journeys, whether in the country or in the city. And to add to all that, I've been criticized by so-called brothers. I've had sleepless nights. I've been hungry. And I've been naked. That's a pretty significant list. That, for Paul, was ministry. And he didn't want to hear about all the other stuff. Why? Because he focused on his sufferings. The second contrast to Paul and the other self-promoters is that he actually, very similar to the first, he actually boasted in a particular affliction. He said, not only was I beaten, not only was I starving to death, not only was I naked, but on top of all that, there was a messenger of Satan sent to me to afflict me. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. It would be interesting to know what the thorn in the flesh was. There have been multiple interpretations of what it was. But honestly, as I look at this, I'm grateful he didn't tell us what it was. Because it allows us to make a spiritual, imaginative application to our lives. What is the thorn in the flesh for you? Let me put it differently. 
If you walk with God and you are a Christ follower, you eventually will have a thorn in the flesh. It's part of your sanctification process. It's an interesting word, thorn, in the Greek. It can be translated one of two ways, and it's been translated both ways. And one uh, way of translating thorn is basically a stake that actually pins a person to the ground. They can't move. The other translation of the word thorn is like a splinter that's somewhere in the body, maybe the eye, that constantly irritates you. Use your imagination. Maybe it's both. Paul says, I had this thorn in the flesh. And it seems like it was his constant irritation. And then he gets really honest and he says, I actually asked God who allowed this to happen. I asked God to take this away from me three times. I begged him. In other words, in tears on his knees, he begged God to take away the thorn. Why do you think he asked him to do that? Well, because it hurt for crying out loud. But beyond that, maybe he thought of it as an impediment to his ministry. Maybe he felt staked to the ground. Maybe he felt like the irritant just caused him not to be able to minister successfully. Whatever his thought was, he was begging God to let him out of it. Reminds me of the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Father, please give me a break. But not my will, but yours be done. Paul says, I got an answer. My answer was no. I'm not going to take it away. Why? Because God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Put it another way, Paul, it's not all about you. It's about the power of God and my power will be displayed more in your weakness than in your success. More in your trials than in your rejoicing. All of these are very similar. They kind of run together. But the first contrast was he boasted in his sufferings, unlike those that were self-promoter. Second, he boasted in his particular affliction and he told us to some extent what it was. And third, he just boasted in his weakness. He said, I get it. I am weak. I, I want to mention something that's a contrast to other people's way of thinking about pain and suffering. In a general sense, we could call it the stoical view of suffering. It comes from Greek philosophers called the Stoics, but it's prevalent today. And he goes something like this, suffering only makes you stronger. If you have a strong enough will and you work through the pain, you're going to come out on the other side of it a better person. There's some truth to that. As a matter of fact, when I was doing a lot of running, doing half marathons, 
several times a year. I don't anymore, but I used to. You'd see these uh, shirts, and they would have messages on them front and back. And, and one of the ones I saw emerging, I don't know if it's out there as much as it used to be, there was a message on the back of the shirt that said, pain is weakness leaving the body. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Sometimes when I was behind that runner, I was encouraged by the message. Other times when I was behind that runner, I wish I could run fast enough to punch him. I don't need that right now, I would say to myself, right? Here's the point, humorous as it is, that's not what Paul's saying. It's great advice, I get it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, if I endure hard enough, I will have a great willpower that will take me over anything. That's not it at all. What he's actually saying is that your suffering, your weakness, is an opportunity for God's glory. Paul might have put it this way. You look at me and you say to yourself, how did God bless that? And Paul says, that's just the point. God did it. So that's the contrast to Paul and his critics. Now I want to make some contemporary applications, life lessons. Uh, the first is to say this. Um, Paul's perspective is a dramatic, underline dramatic contrast to the prosperity gospel. The so-called prosperity gospel says if you're sick, God will heal you if you have enough faith. If you're unsuccessful, if you pour your money into some ministry, God will pour money back into your lap. If you're unsuccessful, it means you're not following God. You may have heard a few years ago a rather popular television preacher made the statement that if you're suffering financially and you don't have enough money to give to this ministry, then what you need to do is use your credit card and go in debt to support this ministry and then God will prosper you. That kind of rhetoric, whether about health or prosperity, is light years, light years away from anything Paul ever had in mind. So let me say it clearly from my point of view. That kind of teaching is completely unbiblical and is a disastrous heresy. It's not the gospel. Second, contemporary application. It seems to me that Paul is not suggesting that we run after, seek, look for high-level mystical experiences. How many mystical experiences at a high level can you remember Paul talking about in his epistles? 
this one and only this one. And he spoke of it in the third person. And the only reason he spoke about it is because his back was to the wall. He was just trying to defend his ministry. And he said, I won't even boast in a person like that. Instead, I'll boast in my weaknesses. It's, it's a sad commentary that some of our Christian tradition is laden with methods that are offered to people for the purpose of experiencing a spiritual experience. Just do this. Just follow this pattern and you'll experience a deeply mystical experience with God. They speak about it as if it's a spiritual maturity credential. They share it like it's something that everybody needs to know. Paul never used it as a credential except on this occasion. And it was linked to weakness. And he never shared it with other people and said, this is how you get there. Paul experienced the blessing of God in a mystical experience. And when we try to create methods to get us there, or when we pursue mystical experiences passionately, a really damaging thing happens to our spiritual maturity. One of the uh, authors I read this week suggested that seeking these spiritual experiences was really damaging for several reasons. The first, I love this quote. Listen to it. I'll read it slowly. I'll read it twice if you want to write it down. He says, when you seek for this spiritual mystery and mysticism and spiritual high, the ordinary will eventually give way to the unusual. The unusual will surrender to the extreme. The extreme will topple to the ridiculous. Often, the inevitable consequence is spiritual emptiness when you're chasing an experience. Another author puts it this way. The seeker for experience goes back through the ritual again and again, but begins to discover something ecstatic experience does. Like a drug addiction, it requires larger and larger doses to satisfy. Eventually, there is a crisis. And a decision is made. Will he sit on the back seat as a spectator and fake it? Or go on in the hope that everything will eventually be as it once was? The most tragic decision for these kind of people is to quit. And in quitting, abandon all things spiritual as fraudulent. 
The spectators are frustrated. The fakers suffer guilt. The hoping are pitiable. And the quitters are tragic. The contemporary American church is filled with that kind of tragedy. Paul doesn't tell us to seek after high-level spiritual experiences. He says to focus on what God is doing in your life and allow God to glorify himself through your weaknesses, not through your strengths. Third point of application for us in contemporary culture is that suffering is an essential part of sanctification. Sometimes the suffering, quite frankly, is imposed by God very directly. Sometimes God uses the suffering, which is circumstantial or, or whatever. In this case, the instrument came from Satan, but God uses those things to sanctify us. Let me provide a corrective. It's possible that you could fall into one of two extremes when you face suffering or when you think about suffering. The one extreme is that you say that all suffering is a result of sin and Satan and somehow you're under the judgment of God and if you just get right with God, you wouldn't be in this situation. (coughs) That is obviously wrong. The other is that suffering, since it's a pathway to sanctification, is something so important, I'll create my own. I'll be sadomasochistic. I'll be an extreme ascetic. I will put myself through a literal hell so that I can be sanctified all on my own. Neither one of those those extremes is what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying there's enough in life and in the providence of God to create pain and suffering in your life so that through that you can be completely sanctified. You don't need to do it yourself. And please, whatever you do, Paul would say, don't pretend like it's all from the devil. God uses it. The fourth main point I want to make in terms of application is that the source of our suffering is not the main issue. The source might be God. The source, in this case, is God and Satan. Or the source just may be bad circumstances. God is using suffering for all of us, no matter what the source, to shape us. And whether or not we are shaped according to God's plan, depends entirely on our perspective on suffering. Because we could just be angry about suffering, and it wouldn't shape us properly. We could be resentful but we, because we had suffering and somebody did, else did not. That would not shape us pro- properly. We could just resign to suffering and be kind of stoical about it and pretend like it doesn't exist or that suffering is for the purpose of making me stronger on the inside, my will. That's not a proper approach. The proper approach to 
facing suffering is to ask a question, a simple question. God, what are you trying to teach me? I work with uh, an amazing group of people on the church staff. I wish, I wish you all knew them as well as I do. I also wish you could hear their insights because frequently we hear them in our staff meetings on Wednesday afternoon. Every staff member is assigned to prepare a devotional. Not every week, or we get nothing done, right? But every week somebody else is on assignment to open with a devotional. And they sometimes are just amazing. This week, one caught my attention in particular. It was uh, Adam's time for a devotional. And he reminded us of a passage in John chapter 9. If that doesn't ring a bell, it's the passage where Jesus and the disciples meet a blind man who's been blind from birth. And the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, why is this man blind? Who's at fault? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus threw him a curveball like he always did, and they swung and missed. <laughs> and he said, neither. He's blind so that the glory of God may be revealed. Now, I want to tell you something. The man was 40, as I recall. I'm glad God didn't ask me to sign up for 40 years of blindness so he could reveal his power. That would be tough. But Jesus said, look at this life circumstance and stop asking the foolish question, who done it? Look at this life circumstance and watch for the power of God. And of course, Jesus healed him. But it's interesting how Jesus healed him. He didn't just say, have your sight. He actually stooped and put spit on the ground and created a mud pad and packed it over the guy's eyes. Now, if you're not aware of this, that was actually a medicinal use that was frequently practiced in the ancient Near East, a salve on the eyes. It's curious to me that Jesus did that. I wonder why. My first inclination is to see it as something like that story of Naaman in the Old Testament where Naaman has got leprosy and he goes to the prophet. And the prophet says, I got a remedy. Go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times and come out and then you'll be okay. And Naaman says, what? We got rivers back in my country that are a lot better than yours. The Jordan River, it's a sloppy, muddy river. Why should I do that? And he goes off in a huff until this young servant girl who gave him the cue about the prophet because she was a captive from Jerusalem. She said, Master, if he'd have asked you to do something really big and grand, wouldn't you have done that? And Naaman goes... Yeah. She said, well, why don't you just go dip in the Jordan? You know the rest of the story. He dips seven times and he's freed of his leprosy. Maybe. Just maybe Jesus was saying, I'm going to humble you by spitting on dirt and putting it on your eyes. 
or maybe Jesus was saying, you know, there's remedies everywhere for this kind of thing. I'm going to step into one of those remedies and I'm going to show you that even when the remedy doesn't work, I'm the Lord who heals. And I'll heal in a variety of ways. Hmm. I can't help but think of what Adam was thinking about when he gave this devotional. His point to us was we're in the middle of a crisis. I guess you would expect this, but we hear from this side and that side, we're doing too much, we're not doing enough. I understand that. It really doesn't even frustrate me that much. But it's, it's kind of tough sometimes. And Adam said, we can do this. We can hear it from one side and the other. And we can just walk. This was his phrase. We can walk with mud-caked eyes towards the pool. That's what Jesus told the blind man to do. I'm going to put mud on your eyes and I want you to walk to the pool of Siloam to experience the healing of God. That could apply to a lot of situations in your life, personal ones. But it could apply to where we are right now. We can't see. We think we know what's right, but it's making us uncomfortable. We love each other, but we get angry. Just put mud on your eyes and walk to the pool. That's a great way to end a sermon. And it wasn't even my idea. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for um, confounding us with your mystery and grace. You have more than a bird's eye view. You have an eternity view, and we have a one-dimensional view. Except when we accept your eternal view. And in order to accept your eternal point of view, it's a little bit like the blind man. We just, we have to put the mud on our eyes and walk towards a pool of healing. We don't know when it'll happen, how it will happen. But we know that on the journey, you're going to sanctify us. Through the trials of life, you're going to get the glory. And really, that's the way it's supposed to be. Our lives are supposed to be a living sacrifice for you so that the world can see us and glorify God. So give us the grace to walk. Give us the grace to believe. In Christ's name, amen.